Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a that's a really interesting conversation. I mean, see, all these contemporary composers are they're creating like new languages, you know, and they're assuming that these new languages are going to be understood by the public. And um, sometimes they are. Some a lot of times they're not, you know. And sometimes it's a matter of. Um, you know, just getting used to it. But there's a there's a lot of, um, especially really cutting edge composers. You know, they go really far with trying to, you know, um, expect the audiences to understand what's going on. Um, some of them, I don't know if they're interested in audiences understanding them. Sometimes they just want the, the music to sort of wash over them. So I mean, it's there's a whole other different level of um, conception and, and philosophy going on, which I think is exciting. You know. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, and I am excited to have on the the uh, um, on the show today acclaimed pianist and uh, and piano mentor and teacher, Thomas Rosencrantz. Um, he has truly charted a career that, that breaks through the conventional boundaries of solo piano, chamber music, and the art of improvisation. Uh, he has established himself as one of the most innovative and innovative pianists of his generation. He was honored uh, to serve as a cultural ambassador on behalf of the United States Department, uh, or State Department, excuse me, traveling to the Middle East and North Africa, promoting diplomacy through artistic collaboration. Uh, he was named the recipient of the Classical Music Fellowship Award from the American Pianist Association and regularly performs at important musical centers in America. In addition to his performing career, he, has, he is a, a celebrated artist teacher in 2021, Portland Piano International honored him by naming him a Tholen uh, Master Teacher. In 2019, he was granted the official title of Visiting Professor of Piano at uh, Sichuan Conservatory of Music in China, where he is one of three pianists in school's history to hold this title. Uh, he, uh, he is currently the coordinator of the keyboard division and associate professor of piano at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory, and he lives in Kansas City. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, Tom. Hey. I really appreciate you being here, man. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I've been really excited about uh, this conversation. So thanks again for having me. It's really my pleasure. Oh, fantastic. And, and again, we're here. We're, I'm excited to have my good friend, Elias Axel Pedersen on the line. He's the one, again, who kind of kind of put two and two together and put us uh, put us. Uh, put and if love remains together with these great artists so thank you at least for also uh, participating on the show oh thanks mike i love doing these things and reconnecting with people that i in in tom's case i don't think we've seen each other actually since uh rochester days i left That's in right. 03 i don't remember when you graduated but i yeah i mean i graduated in 04 finally so, but i mean it's been a long time <laughs> yeah almost, almost 20 years since we've crossed Jeez, Louise, but it just feels so, uh, like yesterday but it's great to reconnect my goodness yeah. Yeah. oh that's well I, I always like to start with a, a bit of an origin story so so tom talk to me a little bit about like your musical um how how you know when did you when did you start playing music when did you like what was your musical journey like um to make you the the person that you are today <laughs> Jeez. Well, um, I mean, I started kind of haphazardly. I mean, my mother um, decided that she always wanted to learn to play the piano. So she rented a upright piano and I'm one of three boys and she hoped that someone would learn with her, you know, she thought it would be a fun thing for the family to do. And I was the only oh, one cool. that thought it was interesting and fun. Um, and so there was this big, you know, this upright piano in our living room and I decided to um, just bang on it and start seeing what happens, you know, and it, I found it to be really fun. I, so, I sort of thought of it like a toy. And um, I was really fortunate because growing up in Santa Rosa, California, we had this really wonderfully creative piano teacher named Lynn Gendo. And she inspired me, you know, you hear all these stories of you know, old lady piano teachers that are kind of scary and mean. Right. She's kind of the opposite old, of that. She's this old lady piano teachers and old nuns in Catholic that's right. schools. It's, I think. Mean. You know, it's just like this terrible upbringing of these 
you know, people always have this sort of tragic um, story, but I had the opposite. You know, I had this really great teacher that was creative and she encouraged me to, to you know, compose and she was just unbelievably open and she thought of piano teaching as a kind of game. That's kind of how I remember it. And so I, I love that. And then, um, you know, eventually I went to a conservatory and then eventually... Um, you know, things just can, can sort of continued from there. But I think starting like this, um, you know, seeing music as sort of something creative and fun when I was a kid, I think that really helped me. You know, um, it was always something that was, you know, something spontaneous. It wasn't this sort of thing that had to be hard-lined. And I, I think it's thanks to some of my first um, piano teachers, you know. Oh, that's fabulous. That I, I I do love that and I, and you know the fact you said fun I think you know three or four times in, in your in your little intro there I think is is fabulous I think it's it, when I when I you know teach students you know oftentimes I try to remind them you know we play piano we don't work piano you know it takes yeah, work yeah. but you play the piano you know we yeah, got to remember that right. sometimes yeah I like that idea yeah that's that's true I forget about that we do play the piano that makes sense yeah yeah. Amazing. So what, you, what a history. Yeah. So how did you so get you, into the next stages? And I mean, you've gone into such an eclectic career. Um, what, what, uh, what prompted that? I mean, at the conservatory, did you meet different people that, you know, took you in those directions or? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, um, the, the first school I went to was the Oberlin conservatory and there, um, it was, I, I found it to be just really creative, you know, and um, a lot of my teachers were interested in contemporary music. And I mean, we studied all kinds of music, but I remember um, being blown away by some of my first musical experiences, like hearing um, works for the first time, like hearing works by Steve Reich or hearing works by um, Olivier Messiaen for the first time really blew my mind. I had no idea that the piano could sound like that or that music could, could be like that. So definitely some of the some of my teachers inspired me also at Oberlin it felt like a really um a place to explore things so often uh, late at night I would do these free improvisation concerts where I would um I would play sometimes by myself or I would play with um with friends you know someone would be on like a computer laptop or something and um we we didn't expect people to come to these concerts but it was really an experiment in sound you know just trying to see what would happen if we didn't plan anything and what would happen if we tried to create a concert um, on the spot. And so Oberlin felt like a place to explore those things, you know, oh, that sounds so amazing. Yeah. It sounds so, like such a fun yeah. th experiment to take part in. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, that was exciting for me. And then, um, then I went to Eastman and that was a sort of another kind of awesome experience for me. It was, it's just all about the teachers that you're surrounded with. I mean, I found teachers were really supportive of my eclectic, weird tastes. They didn't try to put me in a box and tell me to play certain music. And they let me kind of have free reign over the things that I wanted to play. You know, ironically, now that um, I'm a professor, I, I kind of want to play um, some of the older music, like I'm really interested in Bach now. I'm interested in Beethoven, but I think when I was younger, I didn't see the creativity in that, and that was my own kind of misconception. Now that I'm, you know, out of the conservatory and teaching in the conservatory, I see the the beauty in a lot of this music. Um, it's so, interesting I mean, to go at it from that angle too, because most people, I think, grow up and they play Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and the standard rep, and then by the time they get to grad school, maybe it's like, well, you know, have you considered these people and, and a few, yeah. you know, very brave souls go and work with the contemporary composer and, and you kind of went at it the other way and now can see the beauty in, in Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't, um, I mean, that's just my journey, you know, and everyone has a different, um, approach, but for me, um, now this older music feels so much more fresh because I've been, uh, ignoring it for so long. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's one of the fun things about being a pianist is that the repertoire is just so huge yeah. and you right. can explore um, your current musical tastes. And that's really fun. <laughs> it really is. What Talk to me a little bit um, about maybe the, the um, tension. I don't know if that's the right word. The, the, 
between creativity and craft between that, that kind of fine line or that, 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 um, obviously, you know, there has to be craft involved in the creativity. Um, at the same time, you want to push that creativity and you want to push that craft maybe beyond, uh, you know, certain bounds that people like and enjoy. Talk about that kind of tension that, do you feel that ever or, or. Sure. um, I mean, you know, um, I, I think there's limits. I mean, there's, I think in a strange way, if you put a limit on something, it helps you to be more creative. Like uh, Stravinsky used to say that he used to love to put limits on himself because it made him feel more creative. And so like in a pianistic way, you know, I mean, if you play Bach, of course there's a kind of stylistic limit on there. I mean, limit's the wrong word, but there's there's a frame. And, you know, it depends how big your frame is, you know, Um, it depends on do you you know do you think that you should improvise in Bach you know do you think that there are certain liberties that you can take and I think those are the kind of things that are fun you know the notes are still there the con the perceived concept is still there of Bach but I think you can open up your frame more to try to be expressive and try to um, speak through this music you know I think the important thing is that at least just for me, I don't see it as like something to replicate, like something that I'm, I'm not interested in is just, you know, practicing in my office and then trying to, you know, give a performance to try to replicate exactly what I did. That's not interesting. Mm, you know, that's what I'm interested in is just like, what's, what could be spontaneous? Why give a concert anyway? It's a special event. You know, it's a special kind of reading of something that will never exist again. Right. And, and so for me, that's exciting. And there's a risk involved in that because I could, you know, if I want to take a risk, maybe there's wrong notes, that's okay. Or maybe there's something that went awry. But I think that risk and that excitement is something that um, I want to get at, you know. So there's a reason why a live performance still exists, you know. I guess Absolutely. replicating kind of what, I guess that's a good way to put it. Like you don't want to replicate exactly what you did. Of course, you want to practice enough so you, you have the pattern, yeah. you have the rhythms, you have the notes and, and all that. But but within that frame or that framework that you're creating, um, you know, how much can, can you push those boundaries when you perform? And sometimes you might go over those boundaries and, and even to your dislike or to somebody else's dislike for, for the mm-hmm. like, that's not tasteful or whatever. Right. But, um, you, you kind of do have to take those risks. If you if you just say, I'm not going to take any risks and, and go middle of the road, you know, you're not really saying that much and somebody might as well just listen to a recording. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And um, that's something that, you know, when you go back to older music, you have to battle with. I mean, mm-hmm. why are you playing that? Like, why am I playing the Goldberg variations again? It's been said so many different times. Right. And, uh, what can I say that might be part of me rather than, um, I, you know, there's no way that I'll be able to ever sound like Glenn Gould or, or these other greats that have played this music. But what is it that I can say that might be me? And it's just yeah. it's kind of like, I mean, you know, you get older and you're just like, you know, this is me. Take it or leave it. I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And this is my perspective on this music. And it may not be what you think it should be, but um, here's how I want to share it with you. That kind of thing. Right. And, and depending on how subtle or um, exaggerated you want to be, I mean, that's really, that, that, that is finding your voice and finding, you know, what are you trying to say? I, music, like any art music, I think is, is a way to express ourselves in a way that can't be expressed in any other way. You know, you can't express Definitely. Music, you can't, you can't express musically through dance or through words. It has to be, it has to be expressed musically. And so if we can, you know, tap into what, you know, what are we trying to say? What, you know, what is Tom trying? And, and that's the other part of it from the audience perspective. Like, you know, what, what am I trying to learn? What am I, you know, he's saying something by playing it this way. How, what can I glean from it? And what can I learn from it? Yeah. I, I hope that, audiences uh, audiences will be open like that you know very often unfortunately is that sometimes there's a kind of um dogmatic approach to classical music and even the audiences are less open you know and so like when i hear about stories from you know pianists that are now in their 80s or 90s or recently passed away they tell me these fascinating stories of 
you know, pianists would come to wherever and um, it could be some of the pianists would play the same pieces, like someone would play the Waldstein one night and then a different pianist would play the same piece, but they had such a different point of view. And that's what was exciting to hear, you know, right. it's like, what is their reading? And um, I think, I, I think a lot of times now, nowadays, it kind of seems a lot of very middle of the road. And um, I don't know if that is like, I, for me, that's less interesting, you know? Do you think that's a, that's a cause of, the the kind of I mean you you grew up in in conservatories but you think conservatories are part of the problem when it comes to yeah to well that. I mean it's not all it's yeah it's part of conservatories I mean like of course where what's amazing now is that the technical level of pianists is probably the highest it's ever been in in the world and at For any sure. time you know but um, on the flip side the the creative or the different kinds of musical responses is probably not as um as interesting well, as it used to and, be and elise and i have talked about this you know sometimes like uh technical like when you're spending your time in being technical or, or in a craft it can be hard to uh, you know think outside the box because you're thinking yeah. about the, the the technically you know how you know how can i do this perfectly Right. whatever that means. <laughs> right. I know. I mean, it is, it's, there's always going to be that, um, conflict, you know? Um, but, um, that, that's sort of the, that's why we're doing it, you know, but it, it can't always just be about the technical thing. There has to be like a, a, some meaning behind it, the musical idea behind it, you know, but of course that's what we grapple with all the time, you know? Yeah. We, we had a nice conversation with Mark Ainley. I'm sure you know him mm -hmm. at, or are familiar with him. And, and we spoke about, how recordings have really changed the face of, of music in general and the expectations, at least for the audience, when you go to a concert, you think, oh, well, it's going to be you know, note perfect, first of all, and, and it's mm -hmm. going to have this kind of interpretation because I've listened to this recording of a great pianist who plays it this way. And, um, you know, recordings are so ubiquitous. It's very mm -hmm. hard to get away from that and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try something new. You might not agree with it, but this is, how I interpret this piece and to have an audience member open to that, uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, all this, I mean, we have all of the world's music just on YouTube. I mean, we can access it so quickly and that's changed our point of view. And I mean, it's fascinating to me. I don't have the solution, but it's fascinating to me after this, all this pandemic stuff with everything being put online and concerts are online. When we finally get back, what is that going to change our perception of things? Like, how are we going to listen differently? I don't know, but um, for sure, things are going to change next year and the next yeah. decade. Things are going to be different, you know. I hope uh, there's a freshness to it and just people appreciating that. Oh, this is live sound, you know, with the yeah, the, oh the yeah, sound. That's board. right. Like, I, I enjoy this. Of course, we're going to hear candy wrappers, and I'm sure phones going off. Uh, but I miss that too, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a performer, it's kind of a pain, but man, I, I missed the, I missed the interaction with the audience that, that, you know, that that's big for me. That energy is, is important. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Cool. Well, I was, uh, here, if we, we could take, go, oh, ahead. go ahead, Mike. No, you go ahead. No, I, I was going to go in a different direction. So you go oh, ahead. I, Elias. I was just thinking <laughs> how, you know, I, I mentioned and, and Mike also brought up and you did about, um, conservatories or universities in general or music programs uh, playing a role in this. I think there are many facets to how music is being maybe um, put down a certain channel or, or um, code, not codified, but just um, compressed. And mm -hmm. I, I do have to say maybe on a positive note, the last maybe decade or so, I've, I've started to hear more young pianists. I think because some of the teachers are getting more interested in new stuff, such as yourself, and it's pushing more uh, of the boundaries of possibility and, and what you can do uh, interpretively. And so I'm, I'm starting to see a little bit more uh, diversity in the inter interpretations and what's accepted out there. Uh, mm -hmm. But what do you think the conservatory of the school, does that play a large role? I mean, we, we see a lot of these conservatories with very established teachers that have been teaching there for, for many years. I know you studied with some major names, and I'd, I'd love to bring those up. I know you mentioned stories from, from some, and one of your great teachers recently 
passed away, and maybe we can talk about about that. Um, you know, how how do you like? I'm bringing up a lot of things, but those traditions that are passed down, which are important, but uh, mixed with, we have to see things in a fresh light, in a new way. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you grapple with those? Things. It's a huge topic, um, but I think it starts with the teacher. I mean, if you want to make a change, start with yourself, you know? If you want to change the way um, something happens, I mean, the only thing I can, I, I do teach in a conservatory, and the only thing I can change is that what I program and how I teach, and mm-hmm. trying to, um, when I teach my students, try to see them as human beings and see their whole artistic potential. And so not try to put not to try to put them in a in some box. But I think the problem is that in conservatories for so long, there's been like one path. Like if you are a violinist, you're going to go down this path and you need to play this repertoire. And if you're a pianist, you need to do this. I think this is now kind of opening up. And then there's much more of a, a different kinds of ways to go about that. And the repertoire is opening up and so forth. Um, a lot of musicians now are becoming their own, their you know, their own editors and their own um, agents, and they're they're doing all these really interesting things. And I, I think that starts with the conservatory. But as the conservatory gets, as the teachers um, are getting younger, they have a different perspective. Um, and I, I think. That is, it's slowly changing, but anything is, is just going to take time. What I've noticed is that my, my students, as much as I, I admire them, is that they're more conservative than I am. And normally it seems to me that it should be the opposite. You know? Right. <laughs> it's the new generation that should be pushing uh, things. And so I don't see I don't see that as much as I'd like to, you know. So I'm trying to stir things up more to, to kind of get more responses, you know. You know that is interesting, and even on simple things like like you know if I'm talking to a, a, a beginner or intermediate student and I start bringing up improvisation, you know, like they look at me like I have, if I haven't worked with them very long, they look at me like I have two heads. Like, what does that mean? I play something that's not on the page, yeah. You know, and and it's just it's. It, it, we 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 so early in our musical, especially as pianists, I think more pianists than anything else, we are are from the very first day we're learned the most important thing is on the page, and you got to play what's on the page, and um, you know, and I think that that has that has reverberations throughout a career of a person. Well, it definitely does, and you know, when you look deeper into all this, I mean, you realize that. Yeah, some composers want a certain specific, you know, exactness, but other composers they they didn't fill in all the details because they wanted you to fill in the details. Right. <laughs> and um, I, I think it's important you realize that. And um, and you know, going back to you know contemporary music and why that matters is that when you work with composers, you realize that their score is also it's a malleable thing. You know, it's um, of course they've notated things maybe very exactly, but you're constantly making these improvised choices. The concert hall's reverb is different. The piano is different. All those things you're constantly trying to navigate. And so it's not set in stone. And it kind of goes back to the idea of you don't want to, you don't need to replicate everything exactly. We're interested in something that's like free flowing or spontaneous. At least yeah. for me, that's what's really interesting, you know? What? So the conservatories I'll- just, I think they're, they're battling. I mean, they're they're slowly changing <laughs> this, yeah. this new thing, but it's um, you know, just it starts with the professors and trying hard to see things in a different way. Um, I want to contemporary music. I think is a really um important subject that I'd love to to chat with you about because um, for many people, um. I think because of the diversity of music throughout the spectrum from folk, pop, rock, metal, punk, all the way through all the classical genres. And now we're talking about uh, cultural music all across the the, the spectrum. To me, um, so many times it it seems as if music has become more um, divided. In other words, we, 
we can we can find exactly what we like and how we like it and and we can listen to that all day long we it's we don't really um so much look for new things and because and this is just a theory of mine that that maybe because of that um contemporary music is such a large barrier for for the common guy to sit in a concert and like they can maybe maybe you guys can get like mozart and bach but you sit down and you listen to something else, you know, it's like, wait a sec. I, I, I was not expecting this. And, and, and I don't think, so I'm, I'm curious, like, like I would love to introduce people more to contemporary music and, and have them learn that language mm-hmm. um, that, that I think is missing today. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an important thing, but I've, um, you know, the, the way that I've approached it, I've always sort of thought of it like, um, like food, and I've said this before, but it, and it's a cheesy cliche, but I'll just say it again. Cheesy. I mean, that's all right. I mean, um, cheesy because it's true, probably. <laughs> no, no, but I'll just—I'm not ashamed to say. It. But like, um, you know, we um, of course we have all these foods that we like, you know. Um, and for the for the longest time, I was like a super—I was a very picky eater, and I love Chinese food. And then someone pointed out to me that Thai food is also a stir fry, but it also has these things called curries. So they're like, you know, maybe you should bridge out a little bit. Why don't you try this Thai food? It's like Chinese food. And it turns out it is, and it's wonderful, but also has these curries. And then someone else pointed out, you know, Indian food has curries and you like Thai food now. So why don't you try Indian food? And so same kind of thing. And the the point is that if I jumped from Chinese food to Indian food, I probably wouldn't have been able to hang, to do it. Right. But um, because I was introduced in this slow process, um, then it worked for me. And so I think music is exactly the same way. I mean, when I try to introduce new pieces to to students, I don't try to shove it down their throat. You know, if they feel um, okay with Debussy, then we're going to take it one step further. I don't want to scare them by all of a sudden giving them a Boulez piece because they're never going to want to yeah. do it again. So it's it's my duty to kind of slowly get them in so that it's something integrated. I don't want them to feel like, boy, this is so weird. I can't do this. You know, we we try hard to find these connections. I and love so- that. And I, and I think there are connections that can be made. Like, like you listen to a lot of modern mood, movie scores and there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff that's going on in them. Oh yeah. And if you can, if you can equate that to some of the concert music, I, I really, you know, I, I think one of the gateway drugs for a listener to uh, contemporary classical music would be somebody like um, John Luther Adams in his oh, becoming yeah. series, Sure, you know, because you listen to that and like, you kind of get it. Like it, it makes sense. You listen to becoming ocean and it, it kind of overwhelms you. And at the same time, you, you kind of, you, you understand the language of what he's trying to happen. And I think yeah. something like that can, can open up to other possibilities. Well, it's like, you know, if you listen to that piece by John Luther Adams, you have to change your way of listening. I mean, it may seem obvious, but it's like, you can't have the same um, set of musical parameters. Like when you listen to Beethoven, it's different than you listen to John Luther Adams. I mean, right. this is obvious, but so often people just, want to hear um they have their same way of listening to john luther adams and that's the problem right there just like when i go to an american restaurant i'm not going to expect to have the same kind of experience that i have in like a pakistani indian place so but so often listeners just listen with the same set of ears and that's like part of the problem and like so that's something that you know, we're, we all need to, as educators, slowly get people to understand that this is different. John Luther Adams is not trying to be like, you know, other composers. He's doing this different thing, you know. Yeah, he's not Beethoven 2.0 or 5.0. No, he's not. He's just he's something himself. Else. And, you know, it's easier for us, like when we go into an art museum or a gallery, you know, to see these visual um, pieces that are really abstract. Somehow it's like slightly easier because we're a visual culture. But I think you know, to listen to the, these kinds of music, the, these musics that are so different, it's a little bit harder, but I think like anything, um, it can be, it can be learned and it can be enjoyed. You know, it's amazing music. With, with visual arts, I feel that it's very easy to dismiss new art. I mean, especially, especially if you have like uh, Mondrian or something, you just, Oh, they're boxes. Like I, yeah. I can do that. Uh, my five-year-old can do that. And okay. 
But if you hear something that's very contemporary, I mean, you were mentioning Boulez, but you play stuff that's much more contemporary than that. And, and I would say far out. And if somebody just heard that for the first time, I mean, they'd have a visceral reaction to, oh, this is not only not good, it's awful. It's like, it's mm -hmm. really affecting me. Um, and it takes a while. I mean, I even have a hard time listening to Boulez. But don't you have to add, like, like if you're, if you're thinking, and I, and I, I love that point. And I think um, there's two ways to look at it. And most people, you're right, will say, I don't like it. It's affecting me. And I think there's maybe 5% of the audience that will say that's affecting me. Why? Yeah. And I, and what I want to do is expand that 5% to or 7%. Less. It might be 1% yeah, now, right. but yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's an interesting story that maybe I can share. Um, many years ago, I, I played a piece by Crumb. I mean, Crumb is... I remember right? the concert. It's, yeah. not that, it's not that crazy, really. But, well, it was it was like a, another time. It was in Hawaii or something. And okay. one of the teachers um, invited her kids to come to the concert. And um, they and then they had to do like a like a concert write-up. And like, what what was your favorite piece and why? And they all liked the crumb the most because they felt that it was the most evocative. You know, it was like, it was the most otherworldly. It had all these different kinds of sounds and so forth. And so the point was that these children were so open <laughs> to this mm -hmm. new music because they saw it as like, just sort of something fun. And I, I found that to be like really interesting. A lot of um, maybe our listening practices are governed by, you know, stereotypes and so forth and things that are, was never meant to be that way. You know, I mean, so I don't really have the answer, but I, I just noticed that I know that there's always stereotypes to certain things and we judge books by, by their covers and things like that. And music, I, I wish that we could try to listen with open ears. I guess that's the thing I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I, interesting crumb. I think it wasn't there a, um, a George crumb symposium or something that you organized there was many blue moons ago. Yeah. Yes, um, and I and, went to that. Yeah. Oh, you did? Came. Okay. That was a long time ago. But yeah. that was a fun um, couple of days because um, George Crumb came and yeah. he, um, you know, he's an incredible composer and he worked with some of the pianists on their, on, you know, his works and so forth. And um, that, well, I'm glad you remember that. That was a I lot remember of, that. Like, yeah. Because I, I didn't know where he was in the audience. He was a few rows in front of me and I, he stood uh. up. He's already <laughs> quite old by then. And yes. But, uh, yeah. That was the first time I think, or second time I'd heard the Vokes by Annas, uh in high school once. And it was like, Oh, this is crazy stuff, but I love it. Uh, yeah. And then that was the first time I'd heard a lot of the other, I think you did gnomic variations and some others, maybe macrocosmos. Um, yeah. And I really I mean, grew it's to incredible love music. Yeah. yeah. And and the thing is, I think some of that resonates. I think there's a lot of contemporary music that has not necessarily pastiche elements, but things that people can latch onto. And then that's, that puts them in their comfort zone. And so they're a little bit more willing to accept the other things that are outside that. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's hard. I think a, a contemporary composers have to grapple with that too. How much do I, do I compose something that's, that has some traditional elements that people will, will recognize because we are habitual beings. We do like habit and we like things that we already know we like. Um, and how much can I push those boundaries and do something really crazy um, and still hope that I can take an audience member with me on that well, journey? We, right. we had, we had Thomas Posen on, you know, and he's a great, you know, um, theoretician. And, and I like what he said, where he said, you know, we have, we have musical forms because they work. And so, when you have a musical form, like if you're going to expand that form or if you're going to do something different, you need to be, um, you need to have a reason to do that. And you need to be saying something and and expanding that form or changing it or, or obliterating it altogether. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting conversation. I mean, see all these contemporary composers are, they're creating like new languages, you know, and they're assuming right. that these new languages are going to be understood by the public and um, sometimes they are some, a lot of times they're not, you know, and sometimes it's a matter of, um, you know, just getting Exposure. used to it. But yeah. there's a, there's a lot of, um, especially really cutting edge composers, you know, they go really far with trying to, you know, um, expect the audiences to understand what's going on. Um, some of them, I don't know if they're interested in audiences understanding them. Sometimes they just want the, the music to sort of wash over them. So, I mean, it's, there's a whole other different level of um, conception yeah. and, and philosophy going on, which is exciting, you know? 
it is exciting because it, it is like decisions that we make um, both as a listener and as a performer and as a composer is, is all these decisions of like, you know, what am I trying to say? Am I trying to communicate? Am I trying to even make it communicatable? Right. <laughs> is that a word? Uh, you know, am I, you know, am I, am I trying to evoke something that, um, you know, that, that people have never felt before? Um, and then at the same time, you know, how does, how can somebody relate, you know, to, to that, who, who doesn't even, doesn't even know what, what, you know, the right tones are or, or, or how the, the scale, I mean, when you're, when you're, when it's so alien, it, it becomes difficult to, sure. to figure out what's happening. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, I, I love all kinds of music and recently I've been um, getting much more into punk rock. Um, and uh, I mean, there's one of my favorite bands of all time, Fugazi, which yeah. is a, you know, a band out of DC, but I'm kind of revisiting them and listening to a lot of their music. And I find their just the energy behind it fascinating. And sometimes it's, you know, it's, they're screaming and there's all kinds of stuff, but the music itself is so well constructed and these songs are just, um, just, fascinating to me um i, I think I, but you know my goodness it, it, then you can listen to like pakistani um traditional music and you'll find a whole other level of things and mm -hmm. i mean i'm not really I, I really have never felt that western classical music is like the best thing out there i mean there's just one kind of music out of many <laughs> i just right. happen to be a pianist so that's the thing that i use to to play music but um you know, there's all this other incredible stuff out there. You just need to be open-minded to listen to it and just explore it. I mean, it's amazing, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it's just that there has been, it's, it has such a long history. I mean, so do some of these other, uh, you look at Chinese classical music, huge history and a lot of composers, but just the way Western classical music developed and colonialism, you know, which helped push it everywhere. Right. Um, but it's all been written down. It's all been codified. It's it's there, there's so much information that we have on it, um, and so it's, it's become dominant. It's what what we grew up with, uh, and it's it's important to have these other influences, some of which I didn't have till I was in in college. Like I never listened to North Indian classical music growing up. A couple things here and there. I, I never listened to uh, Balinese, you know, or Javanese gamelan music. Uh, yeah. But I I start I love that now. I probably wouldn't listen to it all day, but I've gone to a few concerts yeah. and, uh, and at least having that experience, I don't know how, how much does that affect your, your piano, piano playing? Uh, maybe, maybe 1%, maybe half a percent, but something, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. in your ears somehow. Yeah. I mean, all those influences affect you as a human being and as a open person. And if you let it, it will affect you. Like if you, if you're listening to Gamelon all day and then all of a sudden you, you start to play some Debussy Gamelon inspired pieces, you're going to maybe gravitate more towards the Indonesian side of things rather than the, the French um, side of thing. You know, yeah. I, 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 I'm fascinated with those things, you know, how music could be a kind of filtration of things like all of your experiences and, and so forth. If you let it, you know, especially with improvisation, it's just like a big, um, filter of all of your experiences you know but you just have to be open to it and let it let it come out if you're okay with that you know <laughs> well yeah. if, if you if you don't mind is there a, maybe a top three or top five like if, if somebody who's listening who really has never listened to kind of this modern um contemporary music do you is there a good sure. place that people can start and I can, i'd be happy to you know find them and put them in the show notes but where yeah what, what I mean, should people kind of look me, at i mean boy there's so many amazing pieces. But I think for me, um, Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians is just an incredible piece to listen to for the first time. I, I think that's an amazing um, piece of music and mind-blowing. I think Messian's Turanga yeah. Yeah, Messian's Turanga Lila Symphony oh. is another incredible... Um, these are all, you know, long-winded pieces, but I, I kind of like that about it. Yeah, I, I like long-winded, um, like epic uh, <laughs> stories. You know? um, so that's definitely on there. Um, my goodness, there's so many. Um, I, I think those are the 
those those two those two be uh, a good place to start yeah start with those pieces um my goodness i mean i mean ligeti and messian i would put out there there's a lot of cool stuff that oh yeah i know you've played so i think if you yeah i mean anything by ligeti his all of his piano etudes are incredible his piano concerto is uh, is just an incredible piece of music um and actually i actually like his violin concerto more mm -hmm. than Maybe his piano. I mean, I like both those pieces, but his violin concerto is worth checking out. Um, I would start with those pieces, like just see what happens. But uh, yeah. I think when you listen to those pieces, they're long winded, you know, just listen to it um, with the lights off and, and, you know, don't get your smartphone out. Just listen to it in the dark and just try to focus on the music. You know, I think oh, that's man. sort of true with anything, but I think we, we forget to do that, you know? Yes. And we have we have lost the power of just sitting and listening. Yeah, you know, I, I would I remember growing up and you know I would sit on, um, <laughs> I would I would put my head against the speaker, turn off all the lights, and listen to you know Rush Hemispheres all the way through. Yeah, you know, what I mean? right. and uh, you know, and I would I would hear every nuance, every symbol hit. I would know everything about that piece and. Um, and I, and, and then I would do the same thing with, with Mozart, you know, and I would listen to it and I would go, man. And, you know, whether, you know, the excuse is time or the excuse is you know, our busy schedule or social media or whatever, you know, we have so many things that, that get in the way of just being able to just do the work of listening and it, it pays off so well. It really does. I mean, nowadays, I mean, people pride themselves at you know, all, you know, doing all these things at the same time, but you know, it really takes a, a hit on, on something. So if you're going to listen to something, really try to listen to it, you know, and turn all the lights off. So even your, your visual capacity is off now, and then you're just focusing on listening. And I think there's something to that, you know, turn your smartphone off, you know, smartphones can be turned off. You know, <laughs> I recently discovered that, that there's an off, you know, I mean, I'm kidding, but we're such this kind of connected culture nowadays and um, we yeah. can turn it off and just clear our minds. I think it's a good thing to do. You know, it is such a good thing. It is such a good thing to do and doing that with our bodies. I know there's a lot of things that, that, that rings true with, I think I, I wanted to ask you though, um, cause I know you're, you're, you mentioned you're kind of going back to some of these older pieces, you know, the, the Goldberg variations and, and such, and, and how has, you know, you said you, it's kind of you, you appreciate these kind of grand old masters a little more. Talk to me a little bit about that. Are you seeing like the influence that they've had even to today? Is that what you're well, talking about? I, or what well, do you mean? Gonna sound, I mean, I just see that um, they can talk to me now. I mean, I, I feel like I can have a conversation with them musically. I thought I think before um, and, you know, it's not that my teachers were not open. They're so open minded. But I just felt that you know, what could I really say with Bach that hasn't already been said? And I don't pretend to, you know, think that I have something new or radical or something, but I just feel, um, you know, even this morning when I was practicing, I, I felt that it was really fun to try, sort of explore these different places. And I, I felt, I feel a lot more free to kind of explore Bach um, that I maybe I didn't have in grad school or something. So that's been really fun. But I, I, I suppose, um, it's just, you know, one of my interests in life is um, also um, doing improvisation. And so, and Bach was a great improviser, of course. And um, the thing about the Goldberg variations is that there's repeats on every section and you can decide to take the repeat. But if you take the repeat, why would you take the repeat? And for me, the answer is because you want to improvise, you yeah. know, because you want to try something that, it, that you haven't done before. And so... <laughs> If you and then go back them, to the head. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so if you take them up on that offer, then it, it just changes the piece. And then so with every little variation, there's a, this really great ways to explore. And then if you see how every variation has its own like musical life, it gets to be this huge, interesting novel that you can explore. And, you know, um, I think the other thing is that, I mean, when I play this piece in October, um, I mean, I'll, you know, hopefully I'll do I'll do the best I can, but it's just one version of the piece. You know, when you come back to it three or four years from now, it's going to take a life of its own. 
And so like, you know, to try to answer a question now, when I practice, it's, of course, I'm still trying to get the right notes, <laughs> the right <laughs> rhythms and all that, but it's more about exploring, like, what could this variation be? You know, mm-hmm. like if I let it, where could it go if I if I take the reins off of it? And that sounds kind of a little bit hippie, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I see it that way. And so practice has been a little bit more fun for me because it's every day I sit down and the variation is it's about exploration. It's like, what could it become instead of me saying, okay, I'm going to practice because I want the variation to be like this. Yeah. So instead of like um, seeing it that way, it's about how can I improvise my interpretation? What do I, what's the end goal or what am I trying to explore? And just that little shift of consciousness helps me to be more excited to practice, you know, and to explore these different things, you know? It's sort of like a philosophical approach, but I, I will say, and here's a caveat that I think uh, comes in my teaching and my own playing, is that you've got to have that foundation uh, mm-hmm. in order for that creativity and that imagination to to work, to flow, uh, right. and that experience to be like, oh, well, I could I could have it sound like this. Well, maybe uh, a younger student, let's say, doesn't even have that in, in their lexicon, in their, in their toolbox. So, you know, you've got a vast array of experience that you've developed. And I'm sure if you played Goldberg in in 10 years, you'll have another set of experiences to add to it um, and more imaginative approaches. So um, and the other thing I was thinking when you mentioned, you know, you're you're trying to bring it to a certain level and always experiment. Um, What I find I love about about our literature is that maybe my ending result will be some sort of performance that isn't that far from the standard or, you know, I'm doing a lot of things that are traditional or expected, uh, but I've created it and it's kind of come from me. And maybe in the back of my mind, I heard some recording of Horowitz doing it such and such a way. Uh, But somehow I've, I filtered all that stuff and now it's, it's Elias's version. Um, Right. And, and you're proud of it. You're, you've accomplished something. And, and to get more philosophical, it's like, what are we doing in life? We're trying to accomplish something for ourselves, feel gratified, feel that we're adding, even if it's not for everybody else, it's it's for us. You know, Maybe that's what right. those contemporary composers think. This is for right. me just as much as for others. I really like that. And I, I, think, um, I think what you said about this is, um, this has to feel right for me, I think just kind of what we were talking about with conservatories, like if you want to change conservatories, start with yourself, you know, start with your, your students. Um, uh, And there's a a ripple effect to that. And I think there's a wonderful process of just investigating that every day in your practicing. So the practice is just, just by practicing or by playing the piano, you're investigating that flexibility a little bit more. And I, I think that makes us better human beings, you know, if we do want to get philosophical. Oh, yeah. Of course, on some point, I mean, you have to because you the music is, you know. It well, because it's about meeting. It's like, yeah. why, what's the purpose of doing it if it's if there's no meaning to it? Right. Yeah. So I've, I, I love what you're saying about that. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that's what gets us out of bed every day, you know. Yeah, exactly. There has to be some. I think I always go back to the was it Churchill, some quote about uh, fighting in World War II and and people just wanted to dismantle you know instruments and do this like what's what's the we don't need this we really need you know X Y and Z to to fight the war and and his response was well why why are we fighting then what what are we fighting for I mean, yeah. it's for our culture it's for our music it's for our dance it's for our song and you know, literature all those those things that make life important, but you can't really put a price on it. And I think maybe, maybe going into that um, aspect, I don't know if we can change gears here, but you know, you've taught at many conservatories, you've been to many and you've studied at many places and been all over the world. Um, How do you see the current state of affairs, especially now that we've had a year of pandemic of um, just, just music and the importance and, and how we can cultivate it and, and support it and all that. I don't know if you want to, talk or expound upon some of those points? Yeah. Well, to be honest, I'm really excited about um, this next year because a lot of, I I don't, I don't want to sound negative uh, by this, but a lot of things 
have you know died this last year, a lot of orchestras will never come back. Um, and I, I think that's sort of normal and natural. You know, if something goes away, then something will replace it in a, in a new way. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, of course it's hard that a lot of these orchestras folded and so forth, but I, I think it just, uh, it will cause a reaction that I, I think will be different and interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing like what that will be. You know. What a great perspective. I, I really, I really like that because, you know, it's kind of like when, um, you know, somebody goes through a bankruptcy, you know, or, or a company goes through a bankruptcy just because that company went through a bankruptcy doesn't mean like all the, the furniture is gone and all the equipment's gone and all the people have died. No, the people are there and, you know, it just, it means you need to go under a different management or need something needs to change. Something needs to be filtered out something needs to be rebuilt in a better different way yeah and that's you know i that's an interesting perspective that 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 this kind of chaos can can maybe cause that to happen yeah and you know and so i'm excited to see what what that will mean um i i think boy um that's sort of the only thing i mean i'm just waiting to see how this is all going to play out you know um the thing that's hurtful of course is that a lot of people who had mortgages and families, um, you know, were not, a- they're not able to cover that anymore because right. of these terrible um, financial problems. Um, but these systems of, you know, symphony orchestras will, will force, they're, they're going to have to reinvent themselves in order to stay relevant. You know, one, one thing, what I do notice, which I'm fascinated with, which is related to this in some ways, is that, you know, when I go to China, I notice that all the people in the audiences are young people. They're children and people under 30. In the United States, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, all right. over 60. And, yeah, and I'm yeah. not, and so there's something about that. What What is it, why is it that China has this infrastructure of like new generation that finds uh, classical art music so fascinating with in the United States, it's the opposite. So I, I don't have the answer, but I, I noticed that. And of course, that's why um, classical music is just exploding in China. And over mm. here, I think this there's going to be a great reckoning of a different um, concept of how we use classical music. And I think conservatories are going to have to, you know, um, decide how they're going to change, how they're going to shift. It's not just a shift. It's like, it's a major change. But I think we, and I'm excited because we've all been saying this, that, you know, something needs to change and it starts with us. But I think now it's put everything in hyperspeed because of um, now what's happened financially, you know, to the arts and so forth. So um, I think that a lot of the institutions, they're, they're very conservative here. And, when you have something, you don't want to lose that. I mean, all these orchestras folding, the, the people that were in it, maybe they want to get uh, have another job opportunity or whatever. I mean, we can talk about this in, in other sectors of our economy too, but but that's hard. And that kind mm-hmm. of change, when, you, when you're used to doing something for 20 years, you've played violin in an, in an orchestra and all of a sudden you don't have that, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'll just create it. It's very hard to say, I'll just create a chamber ensemble and tour, you know? Right. Um, that's not in your in your... Uh, what it bailiwick or whatever, but uh, and the other thing is that conservatories, I feel, we're not really training. And I know this is something you're probably trying to change in your own teaching. And I, uh, we'll we'll talk off the air at some point, at, at getting some tips. I'll get some tips, but you know, wanting to get that that position to try to make those changes, and it's the, the system is so resistant. Um, we we don't teach people how to be their own entrepreneurs or managers or throw a concert together. I mean, I, I always go back to the George Crumb project that you put together, which was one of the first big projects I'd seen in a university and, and a student basically putting on. And I just thought, I've never seen this. I didn't know it was possible. How many people actually do this? Um, how many universities would even cultivate doing this? I've never seen something like that since. So um, we're not really offering our students anything beyond okay this is how you play piano this is how you play it better uh and you know okay what what do you do with that how do you teach yeah we have these piano pedagogy courses 
sure we have little music theory so they can go teach at a local music school but um we don't have courses on how to how to manage a career and how to deal with stage fright and how to deal with your body changing and all the muscles that we have we don't you know and and that needs to be a part of the education i think oh it it does it does and it's uh, you know that's slowly changing and that's exciting and i i think you know in the next decade we'll see a lot of changes but it'll be governed by the fact that there are less opportunities like there was this great article in the in Rolling Stone I, I don't know 2 months ago or 3 months ago now about like the fact that you know there's these these violinists who um are getting these really expensive degrees at very notable music schools and their and their first job you know they're barely making $40,000 a year which is like they could work at Starbucks and make more money yeah, so there's right. there's that what's eventually going to happen is that i mean as as we want to have these wonderfully lofty goals, the the economics of this are going to hit conservatories right. at some point where it's just like, you know, musicians are, they're going to conservatories because they love it and they can't, you know, they can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, that's so noble and I love that. But if there is no way to like sustain yourself, then that's going to, that's going to eventually affect gotcha. things. Well, and that's a whole other discussion because I mean, we could talk about the role of digital music and, and how, you know, uh, you know, music has become, you know, in many places, even classical music has become less an art and more a commodity and, and even a free commodity many times. And, and there's no way to, um, how do you, how do you appreciate an artist, you know, when you can literally listen to that artist for free at any time, anywhere, anyhow, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a new state of affairs for, for any art, I think. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what I, 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 I kind of want to go back to, I, I had this question pegged in my mind and I'm glad Elias brought it up. So I'm going to bring it up on the air. Um, what do you see as we're kind of coming close to the, the end of time here? Um, I, as you see students coming up and, and, and you're teaching, um, there at the conservatory, what are, what are things that you're finding that, that maybe, uh, piano teachers specifically can do better to help prepare their kids? <laughs> well, I, I think, um, you know, well, first of all, um, it's true that you have to equip them with the right tools. So we can have all these wonderfully lofty ideas of you need to interpret, you know, this in your own way. But if you don't give them the skills to, to do that, um, then that's important. So you do, there is a kind of basic way that, you know, is sort of um, laying the groundwork down that is so important to what we do. But there's there's other levels of, there's other layers of this after this where you're you're trying hard to listen to the the students' um, possibilities. So and you're, you're trying hard to align them with like repertoire that will stimulate that, which will allow them to become more of themselves, you know? And so it's important that, I mean, one story that I think um, executes this wonderfully, um, you know, the Greek composer Yanis Zanakis studied with Messian, or he hoped to study with Messian. And up until that time, Zanakis was studying only mathematics. But he wanted to bridge out into music. He had a real passion for music. So he went to Messian and said, you know, I, I really want to study music with you, but do I need to go through the Paris conservatory system to, you know, learn how to, you know, deal with music again? Um, or is there a way that I can approach music through this channel of mathematics? And Messian said, yes, do that. And it just that by allowing Zanakis to see music through this guise of architecture and through mathematics, he allowed Zanakis to become the great composer that he was able to. So the wow. point is this, Messian by doing that is actually, that's very difficult because yes. Messian is like negating his own um, uh, education because yeah. that's where he right. came from. So like the the point that Messian was able to to break away from is the fact that he, he saw a different way that it worked for Messian to do, to learn music in this way, but it's not for everyone. And see, yeah. that's a great teacher. That's very difficult if you think about it, because 
you're so used to doing something one way, but then you see this other way that it can work. Yeah, your pride is caught up in yeah. what you do, which is what you've learned, which is how you do it. And there's no other exactly. way. That is the way. <laughs> yeah. So there's something, there's a lesson in the way that yeah. Messian approached his uh, student, Zanakis, I think for us all, that if you, um, see, if Messian would have said, no, you need to do what um, everyone else did, then Zanakis would never have bec- become Zanakis. So in a piano teaching way, it's sort of, you have to have those Zanakis moments as well. So you have to like, we're all educated, but we have sometimes forget of that, forget that what we learned and relearn and try to uh, figure out uh, the best way to talk about that for our student. I wonder though, too, just to provide a little, little pushback, but you know, Zanakis probably at that time was already a very intelligent and capable individual um, and maybe Messian saw that there is no way to kind of catch up going that other route. And he can mm-hmm. offer something to music through architecture and math that others couldn't. And so he's, he saw that talent and cultivated it uh, at the right moment. But you're right. Ha- had he tried that with another student, it might not have worked. And, and you know, maybe most of the, of the time it will, it will go that you have to, you know, you have to learn Bach, you have to learn Beethoven, you have to learn Mozart, you have to cultivate your ear and harmony and, and learn those things. Uh, maybe you can through, do it through pop music. You know, there might be a couple students that, that can, but um, I'm of the stance that it, it's hard for me to imagine really becoming a great pianist through just learning pop music as a kid and how to play pop music. Um, oh, for sure. You know, there, and, and there I know some things, colleagues yeah. that would think that. So. No, you're right. I mean, of course, there's this, the rigor of becoming a classical pianist is we all know about that. I, I guess the, and, and that's um, of course cannot be um, justified enough, but I suppose the thing that happens in conservatories is that after we've gone through the rigor and we've gone through all of this, there's another level, there's another layer of, of this, which, um, which I want to explore more, which I, I think is wh- where you're really trying to get students to, listen to and hear music through their own voice. And that's like a really complicated thing. But I think, I mean, that's a challenge, <laughs> you know, but if we can get well, to yeah, that. Yeah, that's point, the hardest thing. Yeah. I think get well, to that point, then um, we can have some really interesting music making. And, and that's where you become more of a mentor, where where your, your, your greatest asset is, is knowing the individual and helping them through their process because their process is going to be different, whether that's through Bach and Beethoven or through arch- architecture. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to know your student and know who, who you're working with and what the best, best path might be for them and, and let them make those. And by the way, he, if he said, yes, do that. And then he went, to, if, if, if he decided, okay, I'm going to go to Paris. I mean, that, it's kind of an open answer in a way. <laughs> Right. That's what I heard. I mean, it was kind of like, okay, here's your, yeah, yes, do that. Okay. Well, I'm going to do that, which means I'm going to use what I have. But I, it, it's a, interesting. I, I really think like that mentorship is is key to any, um, you know, anybody want feeling the love of wanting to grow and become a better musician and by that philosophically becoming a better person. Cause I do think that those two can go hand in hand and often mm-hmm. do. Well, they should go hand in hand. You know, that I think that's the, the end goal is to make through music better human beings, you know, cause we all know that when we, when we practice music and we, it's, it's really like practicing ourselves, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Wow. Well, I, I appreciate this time. We're, we're coming right to the end. If if somebody wants to get to know you or, or learn about what you're about and, and how um, to contact you or however, what, what's the best way that, that you'd like them to, sure. to find out what love you're doing? To, I'd love to keep the chat going on. Uh, my website is thomasrosencrantz.net. Um, and, you know, uh, if you Google me, I, you could find my email address there as well. And, and we'll definitely I, put that in the, in the description. Sure. Yeah. But um, I appreciate you guys having me on. This has been such a a wonderful conversation with you guys in this very rainy 
uh, Sunday in oh, Kansas City. Yeah, it's, very, it's been sunny. very nice. I'm sure it's hot over there in yeah. Arizona. <laughs> We've hit triple digits, so yeah, it's hot. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. This has been fun. We we definitely are going to have to. We it sounds like we have a lot that we can continue to discuss some other time. So yeah, let's do this it again. Has been really, my pleasure. And thanks for bringing up all these things. It's really a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. Thank you.